the word responsibility popped into my head instantly. I don't know where it came from, but it just, that was the word. And I remember it so clearly. And it just like bounced around in there for like a week. And I was really trying to figure out what does it mean to operate a responsible restaurant? Hey, this is Simon of the Idealist Podcast, where Celia and I sit down with people rewriting the story of our global economy. This new narrative comes in many different shapes and forms and sometimes appears in places you wouldn't expect, like the fine dining world. When your success depends on Michelin stars and Gomio points, there's little room for thinking differently. So you either fit in or you live on your own terms. And you know what they say. To break the rules, you must first master them. That's pretty much what Matt Orlando did. Working through the most well-known star-spangled restaurants of the world, he became Noma's first chef de cuisine in 2010. And what do you do after you're the head chef of the quote-unquote best restaurant in the world? Matt felt it was time to build his dream project and opened a mess in 2013. The vision is pretty straightforward. Responsible deliciousness. What does responsible mean? That 90 to 100% of the food and beverages are organically certified? That you make ice cream out of leftover bread? That you build an aquaponic farming system in the restaurant's very own greenhouse? Yes, yes, and yes. You see, to answer this question, Matt and his team are on a journey. And this journey doesn't come with a pre-formatted playbook, does it? I think we burnt that playbook about six years ago. Right. <laughs> and why exactly did you do that? So we, Amass opened July 2013, so about six and a half years ago. And we, we opened as a normal restaurant. We didn't have the, the mindset or the ethos that we operate under now. And we had been open for about six months and we had our first closure. And just a friend asked me, she asked me, she goes, okay, you've been open six months. Like what's, what's next? Or you, you're going, you have systems in place, you're operating. What's, what's important to you? What, what do you want a mass to be? Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting question to be asked. And I had seen like when you're the head chef at, a, at other people's restaurants, right. you're very much focused on executing what they want. You kind of contribute to their vision. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You 100% contribute to their vision. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you're so focused on that, that your peripheral vision is somewhat limited and you're just super focused on that. So when you open your own restaurant, your peripheral vision becomes infinitely larger and you start to see all these things happening that you've never seen before. And for me, these things were just shocking to me how much waste we were producing. And then, and then we, we've had the garden since the beginning. So we started composting and I saw how that kind of was having quite an effect on the amount of waste going into this, just straight into the garbage. And then I was asked this question. So the wheels were turning a little bit. I didn't know how they were turning or what in direction they were turning. But then when I was asked that question, I really took a step back and was like, okay, the word responsibility popped into my head instantly. I don't know where it came from, but it just, that was the word. And I remember it so clearly. And it just like bounced around in there for like a week. Mm. And I was really trying to figure out what does it mean to operate a responsible restaurant? Right. And I had never worked at a restaurant where this was the driving force. Mm -hmm. It's always like every restaurant is execute, perfect food, perfect service. Everything else that happens around it is an afterthought. It's secondary to those two things. And so 
I had a, we had a week before we were reopening. Mm-hmm. So the, I just thought about this word. It just it was like, I was obsessed with this word responsible. And I just kind of, and then I kind of started to formulate a plan and it wasn't really a plan. It was like just a thought of what this might be. Mm-hmm. And I sat down with the staff before we reopened and I said, okay, we've been open six months now. We're coming back. We have all these systems in place. We're operating a restaurant. Forget about all that. Right. This is what we're going to do. A week before we open. Yeah. yeah. Oh, three days before oh. we open. <laughs> and what did they say? All of them just looked at me with like a thousand yard stare. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh God, what does this mean? I didn't even know what it meant yeah. because none of us had worked in a restaurant like that. And so we just kind of started to kind of pick away at it. And people always ask me, they're like, oh, how do you do this? I'm like, well, first of all, this took us six and a half years to do, mm-hmm. to get where we're at. Mm-hmm. And so don't think you're going to just instantly be like this if you want to be like this. It takes time to do it correctly. So we just started chipping away at little things and and we had, or I had somewhat of a list, Mm -hmm. but that list was very fluid. Just what came to your mind or what was that? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) basically. But as you dig deeper and deeper, that list gets bigger and bigger because you become more and more aware. And I, I'm I'm obsessed with like singular words that mm-hmm. kind of mean a lot, right. like responsible, awareness, impact, stuff like this. Because if you take singular words, you can apply them over such a broad spectrum. So this word aware, like you're just not aware of this as of these things as a chef because you're so taught to think mm-hmm. in a certain way and execute in a certain way. Yeah, and diving a bit deeper in that in that switch you you talked about, you came from from Noma uh-huh. at that point and. 2013, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And what was that like? Because as you said, running as a as head chef at Noma, coming to opening up the, your own restaurant yeah. and your own putting your, your heart in it. Uh-huh. What was it like? I almost imagine it like a corset being ripped open and then you, you have to kind of find your, your own way in, in a, in a oh, sense. I, it's taken me a while to come up with how to explain it in a very short right? But the best way to say, you know, Mike Tyson said one time, You can have the best plan going into the ring until you get punched in the face. Right. And that plan is out the door. Like with a restaurant, you can have the most calculated plan ever and you think you have a vision of what you want to do and then you unlock the door on the first day and that vision just goes away. Yeah. <laughs> Because, Because it's work the reality, the reality sets in, in yeah. and people have opinions and yeah. your staff have opinions and emotions and egos and 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 there's just so many factors that that don't always match the plan that you want that you want to execute. It's good to have the vision as a direction, a direction where you want to go. And then life happens in between, but you kind of have this direction as exactly. a leading And life. it's okay to change directions as well. As long as you believe in what you're changing and you're, you're changing directions because you, you believe in the direction you want to go in. Because a lot of people change directions because they panic. Oh, we're not as busy as we thought we're going to be. They change concepts and this. We never changed concepts here. We just changed how we work as, right. a, as a team yeah. and how we execute. Mm-hmm. So the food obviously has changed over six years, but... That happens naturally in a restaurant as you find your own voice and your your own style and how you like to cook and serve and the flavors you like. That naturally change. But the food here is, has changed because of the way we work. Mm-hmm. The creative process has become inverted on itself 
because of the way we work with byproducts and the way we are really calculated in how we use everything that we have. I mean, the creative process now is affected by the byproducts more than the actual base products that we use. You call that, I think, reverse cooking? Yeah, what do we call it? <laughs> Sony, um, cooking backwards. Cooking backwards, <laughs> yeah, cooking yeah. backwards. So is that, for example, one concept you would say that stayed the same, that is kind of in the, really in the DNA of a mass restaurant? I think, I, well, not until that six month mark where we were right. where like, we're gonna change. So there's a pre-six month mess and there's a post. And then there's post, yeah. No, till now, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, but not, I think as we go on, it becomes more and more extreme. Like before, when we kind of made this mental switch, it was still cooking with like your, your main products, but then using like byproducts as like a seasoning or, or just like a, a sprinkle here or there. Now we actually start with the byproduct as the starting point when we are coming up with a new dish and then a piece of fish is added at the very end. So it's, it's basically reversed. And some, some dishes actually contain no regular products. And if you look at every dish on the menu, every dish contains a byproduct of some sort, either of another dish on the menu currently or a dish that has been on the menu. And if you talk about becoming more radical over time, mm -hmm. is that something which is induced by the feedback of the people or you, your kind of leadership side, you as a person, or is this something which comes from the team? It Where comes from this? the team, okay. 100%. And there's, there's two very, very important factors here. First and foremost is a, a mental switch. You have to switch mentally. And I just wrote something for another uh, publication this week about they, they wanted to know what's the most difficult part of doing this. And, and, so, and I said, you know, the, the physical act of taking almond pulp and turning it into like a dairyless ricotta or taking kale stems and turning them into something that tastes like seaweed, that's actually the, the easiest part of this whole equation. It's the, it's the mental aspect of like switching and seeing that kale stem and challenging that there's still flavor in there and coercing that flavor out of it. So that, and, and, all, and it's simply as like, okay, I'm going to put this orange peel in the bio waste as opposed to in the regular. And having this, if I go to throw it in the regular trash, there's this weird feeling I have of doing that. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, the mental part is the most important factor of it. And how do you, but then second to that is, how do you convince your team to do that? Right. Then it becomes a psychological thing. Then it, the whole psychological factor of this, this way of working is, is the most difficult part about it. Would you say your um, way of hiring changed as well? I think, yes. I would say, because when you sit down and talk with someone and you see the mover on the kitchen during their trial, and really embrace and ask questions about what we're doing. That's how you can gauge if this person is really interested or they're just here to put it on their CV, which those are the people we don't want. We want people that are here that are committed to this way of thinking and they want to learn more about it and they want to contribute to it. Because I tell everyone here like, yeah, you're here to work and you're, and you're here to learn, but you're here to contribute to the team. Mm -hmm. It is a requirement that you contribute to the evolution of this restaurant because You know, if you look at the, the dynamics of the team here, I think we have 22 people on payroll mm -hmm. and 
only four of them are Danish. Mm-hmm. So people are coming here from all over the world to work. And so they come with a different mindset. I know when I moved from San Diego to New York, I had a, my work ethic was I'm here to work. Or I came from New York to the UK, I'm here to work. It's like, so you come with a different mindset, but you also come with a, a commitment. And if you're coming here and making this commitment, then you need to be doing it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And you need to grow as a per, not only a, a cook, but like as a human being and, and seeing the world in a different way. Cause that's essentially a mass as a, I, I view it as somewhat of an experiment in, in culture. Like how do you switch? If we can switch the people's way of thinking that work here, then how do we bring that outside of the walls of this restaurant? When you say this mindset gets activated in a way, do uh-huh. you think the people have to bring some sort of, Uh, spark in them that you can then ignite and, and, and light a fire or is this more something w- which they really learn from scratch that this is a new way of thinking or a different way of thinking and different way of running a restaurant and different I mean it f- most cases it is from scratch but it's the willingness that we're looking for the willingness to forego a lot of ways that you have been brought up as a chef mm-hmm. and kind of put those to the side and approach cooking in a completely different way, different mindset. Process of unlearning stuff and then overriding that exactly. with, with new experiences. And, and some, and, and, and you know, sometimes I still, you know, you'll walk around the kitchen and you'll be like, why is there a leaf of lettuce in the garbage can? And then you kind of look around and I, I'm a bit better. I used to really freak out. <laughs> Now I'm just, I kind of look around. I'm like, all right. Who in this kitchen hates the planet Earth? <laughs> right. <laughs> and everyone, and I'm like, and everyone kind of looks around, and I hold up the lettuce, and you'll see one person will be like, oh. <laughs> right. But there must be, I, I think, talking about culture in in a in a organizational way. Mm. Um, if you compare, I would call it really like regular companies yeah. with a kitchen or yeah. with a restaurant. Uh-huh. My view is, or my observation is, that a kitchen is in in itself. The hierarchies are very clear because yeah. they have to be very efficient and they, they execute in a very structured way. Yeah. Um, whereas in a in a company, you you the trend is to kind of make them more fluid so uh-huh. that the hierarchies are not as steep and that you know people can be approachable in the leadership team and all that. How would you say is that within a mass? Is this also a very steep hierarchy because it's it has to be like this because it's so focused on good execution? I, I think that's old school. All right. That's an old school way of thinking. Yes, there needs to be some hierarchy, but I think that the way we're approaching the kitchen here is very different. You know, every single person in the kitchen has the chance to have an impact every day. There's a whiteboard downstairs that we have in the kitchen that is someone, I'll generally start an idea, I'll put up an ingredient, and then people can, anybody in the kitchen can grab one of the markers and write off another ingredient. And then we kind of spider out and then we all sit down and like, okay, this is my thought process. I'll say, this is my thought process ingredient. What's your thought process here? What's your thought process here? And so there's a, there's a constant conversation um, in regards to the creativity that happens in the kitchen, but this doesn't stop at the food. So if you work on um, the hot section downstairs, you work that section every single day. If you work that section every single day, I'm going to come to you periodically and say, 
are you setting your section up as efficiently as possible? Mm -hmm. And then they're going to say, well, I started like this, but it was kind of not working like this. So I did it like this and now I'm doing, so they have the opportunity. They work it every day. They know how they move better than I do. It's their section. They work it every single day. And so I require that constant thought of, yes, I have it. I have a way of doing it, but is there a better way to do it? Mm-hmm. Like when I have, uh, we have our manager meetings every other week and we examine every aspect of the restaurant, kitchen, front of the house, how the food goes out of the kitchen, the bathrooms, uh, private dining, refrigerators. And yes, we have ways that work great, but there's always another way to do it that could be more efficient. And I think if you stop looking for those ways, then you lose an opportunity. And so applies to the menu here. We've been open six and a half years. Mm-hmm. When, in, when a dish goes on the menu and comes off, it's never done again. Mm-hmm. Because if you have dishes to fall back on, then you miss the opportunity to evolve. So we just eliminate that opportunity, that safety net. So we have to constantly keep pushing forward with that thought process. Yeah. So this is, this is a very strong element then of uh, co-creation within yeah. the team. Oh, and a massive yeah. element of co-creation. It's also in the dining room as well. Like yeah. the uh, Henry Cat, they, are, they come to me constantly like, oh, what about we do this? And what about we do this? And we move this here. And, and it's a constant or in service. Mm-hmm. What about with the coffee service? We do this instead. And, and I, my motto is I'll try anything twice. <laughs> and because if you don't take chances and that's what's I think one of the downsides of the the current state of the restaurant industry right now is that there's all these lists and ratings that people they do well on and then all of a sudden they stop taking chances because they think they've found the formula or they're afraid to fail they're afraid to fail and they're afraid to lose a seat on the list and, and all and so this is create this kind of I feel in the restaurant industry this we're at a point like five, six, seven, eight years ago where the restaurant, or even 10 years ago where the restaurant industry was just progressing. Mm -hmm. So, and now it's just kind of like, there's not this intense progression anymore because people are afraid to take chances. And if that culture existed here, we're like, okay, yeah, we're doing great. We're we're on the top 50 list, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And we just kind of made a formula. I I would just rather shut the restaurant Mm -hmm. because a restaurant is a breathing thing. It's a living thing that you need to keep feeding ideas as any business is yeah. to evolve. I, w- I was just going to say that in that sense, it's very similar to like every other other business in, in, in a way that as an entrepreneur, you, you kind of have the idea and you, you, you're progressing very, very fast in the beginning. And if you find that kind of formula that works for you, yeah. you, try, you, you start hiring people, you're, you're um, yeah, responsible for their families and all that. You, you, you evolve in, in, in that sense, but yeah. also trying to dial back on the risk. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that you are not willing to do. No, no. I'd rather, I mean, it, it's quite a alternative dining experience when you come here. I mean, there's graffiti everywhere. There's hip hop playing. Um, you're sitting in a, I mean, the dining room itself is pretty sophisticated. The service is probably the hardest service to execute because it, you walk this razor sharp edge of um, upscale and casual. Because right. we don't, I want people to be loud and talk and, and have a good time and not feel like they sit there quietly. And so you walk this razor sharp edge of that. And because you walk, you, you walk this razor sharp edge, you have people that 
think it should be something or think it should be something else on either side. So you have, we definitely have our critics and people are like, what, I mean, what is this? And, and that's, and that's fine because the people that really do get it and understand it, they love it because yeah. it's such a different way of dining. It's probably a good measure to, to have people criticizing you in a, in a bad way. Otherwise you would lose your edge. Yeah. In, in that sense. And, and yeah. I think that's, I really struggle with that in the beginning. Yeah. Like when people saying, what is this and what are you doing? Mm -hmm. I don't like this. And I'm like, I really like when it's your own restaurant, it's you're so, or your business. In fact, it's, it's you, you're like really putting yourself out there, exposing yourself. And so when people criticize it, you're, you're just, you're working, you're giving 150% effort and someone says it's shit and you're like, what? <laughs> and so, but now, now, and it's, it's taken me time to really understand that And so if you don't have critics, then you're not pushing the envelope a little bit. You're not, you're not taking risks. You're not, you're not challenging people on what an experience should be. Mm. And so that for me, that's the fun part of it now. And when people do have, do have their opinions about it in this, I love to take those conversations mm -hmm. because a lot of the times it's just that you just need to have a conversation about what this place means. And they're like, Oh, wow. That makes sense. So communication mm -hmm. of what we do here, I think has been our biggest challenge. How do we communicate what you do? Because there's a fine line between communicating and preaching mm. and you don't want to preach because what we do and how we talk about sometimes is perceived as preaching. Like we're, we're this holy entity that is going to save the restaurant industry and we're doing all this stuff and our CO2 footprint is so low and, and blah, blah, blah. And we, you need to, we're saying at first we're like, oh, we'll just, Just do it because it should be done. But we're also seeing now that if you want, if we want to have an impact, we do need to talk about it. So people are become aware. And now we're like to the point where I'm like, okay, let's start to become a little more obnoxious about it. Like really show people when they sit down to eat, this is what your CO2 footprint would be at a normal upscale restaurant. This is what your CO2 footprint is at a mass. Just so they can see, because people go out to eat, they don't understand any of that. So let's start to get that information out there and understand that when you do go out to eat, there is a consequence of that. Is there one thing that you wish you knew when you started on this journey? Oh, there's many journey. things. <laughs> there's many things. There's so many mistakes we've made along the way. Um, and before I answer your question, there's so many mistakes we've made along the way. And we often get contacted saying, oh, hey, can you hook us up with the company that consulted to help you guys get to where we are? And we're like, we didn't have a company. We just kind of organically figured it out. And I'm so glad we did it. And it, maybe it took us a lot longer, but I'm so glad we did it because we weren't being fed information from an outside source. So we weren't manipulated in any way in the ways we went. We just kind of, we did it when the moment arised, we addressed it and worked through it and then went on to the next. And so I think we've probably achieved much more than we would have, maybe over a longer period of time. But I think the next, the next thing for us is how do we take all this information that we've gathered over the last six and a half years and distill it into something that we can actually help restaurants do this in a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. But I think the, I believe your question was, what was the, most challenging if there is a thing that you wish you knew when you started uh, out on this journey yeah. i wish i would have known what our co2 footprint was much earlier because or i wish i would have understood the value of data mm. because i think we're in a very interesting place in the restaurant industry now right now because 
the word sustainability, which we don't really say it in the restaurant anymore. We say responsibility or responsible. That word sustainability is becoming a catchphrase like organic. And a lot of the industry is throwing it around to greenwash themselves and to, because it's a cool thing now, um, as it it's is also in the, a thing in the maybe, world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that sells, exactly. I, I believe. Yeah. And so, you know, how do you understand when you say that word, what does that mean? How do you understand what that means? Because you can't just say that word. Oh, we're doing this so we're sustainable. What is that? Like, what do you mean? How do you know you're sustainable? And the best example, and I say, I wish I would have known what our CO2 footprint was earlier because we started this whole process in 2014. We didn't get our first CO2 reading till 2016. So that means we didn't get it till 2017. So it was for 2016. And this CO2 reading, is this from the place itself or it's the food that you the produce? The place or? itself. Okay. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Um, so we were already working for two years in this mindset, doing a lot of things. And I thought we are, we are going to smash this. We're going to get such a good CO2 rating. The average restaurant, high-end restaurant produces 19 to 21 kilos of CO2 per guest. Mm -hmm. When we got our first reading, we were producing 18. And I was like, how is that possible? We're doing all this stuff. But because we didn't understand what we were doing, mm -hmm. we were just doing things, not understanding what impact it had, thinking we were great and doing all those things. But actually, we were spending so much effort on all these things that actually had very little impact and we were missing the things that had the bigger impact. So I mean, this CO2 analysis is a very intense process and where you understand what was the CO2 footprint of the turbot you ordered in mm -hmm. over the year, like that detailed. Mm -hmm. And so once we had that analysis and had conversations with the group that did it for us, was Zero Footprint was the first one that did it with us. Um, then we could make calculated decisions based on actual data on how to reduce our footprint. We just got it. So now we work with the, actually the university with students that do our footprint every year. So they do their thesis on a mass and our carbon footprint. And we work with them closely on understanding the process of measuring the carbon footprint. So last year we came in at around 12 Kilo. wow. kilos yeah. per guest. Mm -hmm. But we've only been able to achieve that by understanding the data. You know, the little CO or the little uh, nitrogen cartridges mm -hmm. that you, that you do, you aerate stuff with for cream or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. We used 82 of those over the whole year, 82 individual ones. Most restaurants use 82 in a week. Right. That accounted 82 over one year, 1% mm. of our, of our emissions. So that in that sense was a bit counterintuitive to you to that this was such a little impact. Or and we, well, no, no, that is a massive impact right. for only 82 cartridges. Right. Okay. It's a massive impact. Got it. So we just, based on that, we just eliminated it completely. Mm. That's 1% of our emissions mm. right off the bat. It's a mix of intuition in the first place, kind of going into the right direction yeah. and starting somewhere and then understanding data and exactly. the process behind all these um, trendy words yeah. um, I mean, when to you, then achieve a really exactly. or a bigger impact. And I think when you start to understand data and the importance of that, that's what you start to get frustrated by people you know are not using data and just like throwing things out there. Mm. 
and just making, I mean, clearly just false statements because they don't understand what's happening. And why do you think is that? Because obviously there's this, there could be an economic reason for that, that they say, okay, if we put this out there, then there's only gonna, an economic right. reason. This I don't, I mean, a lot reason. of, I mean, I, I think it's a driving force. Yeah. And that's why I say we're at this weird tipping point right now, because there's all these restaurants out there that are preaching this and not understanding it. And then by doing that, it's completely devaluing the work of people who are really doing it. Like Doug from Silo in London, like they are, he's militant, uh, Christian Pugliese at Relay, like, and us, like there, and, and there's, there's numerous other restaurants out there doing this. And I think everyone gets frustrated by all these people just throwing words and, and facts around that they don't mean anything because they're not based on data. And that, and you know, I mean, it's the perfect American government scenario. That's what's happening in the U.S. government right now. And but I think that just happens in the world in general. It, yeah. But it's the first time I've really seen it in the restaurant world, and that and I think that's what scares me a little bit. Like we are the restaurant world who's based in hospitality and making people feel good, isn't somewhat becoming a tainted like the rest of the world. Mm. And how do you feel if you take the the customers or the guest perspective in that sense? How does this driving, like the, the militant force of being responsible, how d does this translate to an experience of the guests in the first place? Well, for us, first and foremost, it has to be delicious. Mm -hmm. Nothing we do or nothing we will serve. I was going to say nothing we do. We make a lot of stuff that's disgusting. <laughs> Co-creating disgusting <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> we make a lot of things that are disgusting and obviously those never make it onto the menu but you have to fail to achieve something. But I always say to the staff, you know, we have an obligation to serve super delicious food, have great service, because that's the only way we're gonna convince the industry that this is the right direction to go and you don't have to compromise anything. In fact, you enhance the guest experience because it's the, for me, the pinnacle of what I feel is the guest experience here from my, from, from my standpoint, is that when you have someone come into the restaurant, they've heard about it from a friend or they've seen it on an in-flight magazine or, or something like that. They don't really understand what we're doing here. They sit down, they get a little kind of brief introduction at the beginning. There's a little thing you read about, okay, this is kind of our, our mindset. And, and they start to have the meal and they just, and, and then halfway through they become interested like, okay, and start asking questions about our thought process. And by the end of the meal, they're like, this is crazy. I've never had a meal like this that I feel actually I'm walking away from this experience like with no guilty conscience because I've eaten at a restaurant that is operating in this way. Mm -hmm. That for me is like a really powerful experience for me and I think for the guests as well. And it makes people question kind of their own life right. and what, how they approach situations at home you're kind of adding a layer of experience to those, to the food, to the music, to the service, exactly. to the hospitality in itself. This is kind of a new layer you're adding. A new layer. Okay. And, that's, and, and that's for us, that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. Mm. We want people to, when they go online, okay, where are we going to eat tonight? Uh, I don't know. We're not going to go there because they're, I don't know, they don't really operate in the right way or where, I mean, I can tell you right now, the majority of the meals I have in Copenhagen are at one of Christian Pugliese's restaurants because, Same here. because I know that the products they use 
are, I know right where they come from. I know the farmers myself because we use a lot of the same farmers. And I just know that it's, it's the right thing to do. And so how can we kind of have the general public start making decisions like this? And just as we, as we talked about this, how do you see that paradox between, because your restaurants and also Puglisi's restaurants are, I would not say for the 1%, but they are not your kind of everyday eatery in uh -huh. that sense and are for a certain set of people. And yeah. you have the kind of aspiration to make that um, a thought process for everyone. Yeah. How, well, how the is brewery this? is, okay. the brewery is, right. I mean, we have a restaurant in the brewery and- Let's talk about uh, the brewery. Yeah, what, let's, let's talk about, about it. <laughs> <laughs> so we opened the brewery in January of 2019. You know, we do 60 guests a night here. That's a, not a large number of people to, to impact. So how do we take our thought process here and our mindset here and apply it to something that is scalable to impact as many people as possible. And we have a full restaurant over there as well. And how do we make food that is way more approachable, not only taste-wise, but from an economic standpoint? You can get a four-course menu over there for 300 krona. Right. And we have fried chicken and, and fermented potatoes and, and stuff like this. And so, How do you apply this process to a much casual setting to impact a much larger group of people? And, and that's a big part of why we did the brewery. Also, I love beer as well. So <laughs> good coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of the answer to that because I, got, I, I used to get engaged constantly at conferences and symposiums like, okay, great. You have a, you operate a, an upscale restaurant. That's why you're able to do this. So I'm like, no, you can do this in a, in a casual setting as well. Mm -hmm. And we saw the opportunity also over there uh, because it's such a large space that we built a research kitchen. And that research kitchen, it's, it's still called a mass research kitchen. That is, is a kitchen that is, so Kim and I um, have, Kim's been with me since day one. He's the head of R&D over there. And it's always been him and I, and then Max, who's my head chef, like doing a little project while we're butchering a piece of fish or like on the side and in this space, And so when we, and we just got to the point where from an R and D perspective, we had so many things we've done and we had, all of our notebooks are filled. Now we need a space where we can just focus on that stuff and understand what we were doing. And then, like I said, be able to distill a lot of our thought processes and techniques and, and processes into something that we could eventually share with the rest of the restaurant industry. And so that's what we're doing in that space. And It's really exciting because now that we have a bit of headspace to focus on these things, that has opened up even more processes and techniques. Mm -hmm. And a, a big part of what we've learned, and you know, we opened the space eventually or initially to process all the byproducts from a mass and from broaden and build. And then we started to have these conversations with large format food, um, like industrial mm -hmm food outlets. Those who make the impact in, in the end. Who produce a lot of stuff, like yeah. someone who sells bread to Irma, like stuff like that. Because they were like, we don't know what we can do together, but we love the way you guys think. Can you look at one of our byproducts that we create? And maybe we can come up with something. Mm -hmm. So uh, Yarn B, mm -hmm. the bread company, mm -hmm. approached us a year ago and they sat down with us. They're like, let's have a coffee and just have a conversation. We don't know about what. So we had this conversation about what, what we could do and we saw the different 
spice mix would be made out of byproducts and blah, blah, blah. We asked them how much bread you guys have every day left over. And I can't remember the next, it's over a hundred loaves of bread, I, I believe, or maybe between 50 and a hundred, I'm not quite sure the exact number, that they have every day that they can't sell because of the wrong shape to go into the, the bags they okay. put them in. So I said, bring us the bread. We worked on a process to take that bread and enzymatically change the starch of the bread to sugar. And then we take that liquid, reduce it, and make ice cream out of it. So bread to ice cream yeah. factory. Okay. And so then we, we kind of had this, they, they loved it. Mm. And then we had this kind of release. We did it at Copenhagen Cooking in August. We had a stand in the, where they had one of their events and we, we just gave it away. I gave a talk on stage about it. Uh, and all of a sudden, and then Irma was like, let's talk about this. Mm. So nothing's come out of it yet, but we have a first quarter of 2020. Hopefully something, this will become something that's produced. Right. So this would be then the, the real kind of result of having kind of a luminary idea, a visionary idea here at, at yep. MS, then kind of scaling that or, or making that more open to the broader yeah. people at Broad and Build. And exactly. another topic that just was so amazing to me is that everything in that industry is basically based on collaboration yeah. in a way. So yeah. those collaborations you, you can see are Richard Hart doing bread at Brown and Build or, yeah. or John's Hot Dog Daily doing hot dogs there. And yeah. this is like the, the stuff you can see. Yeah. But collaborations like Irma coming to, to MS yeah. and, and asking for advice in that sense yeah. or a way to, to produce it is really like a, this kind of a... It's the next. I mean, for us, that's that's the the ultimate goal. Mm. And how do we engage large format food producers, identify waste streams, mm. and then turn them into something that they can resell that's delicious? And I think as soon as you say we're going to take something that you lose money on, and we're going to make something that you make money on out of it, then as soon as then they're interested. Money is involved, then everyone's interested. Another thing that we talk about constantly is that, you know, we obviously are in this for the the moral part of it. Like this is, of course we need to make money to keep the, all these projects going, but it's, a, it's deep rooted in the moral responsibility to do something that has an impact on the environment around us. But you know what, if you're a big corporation and you have no morals and you want to do something just to make money, but that something is something that eliminates a byproduct or a waste stream that has a positive impact on the environment. Mm. I don't care why you do it. Mm. You just do it. <laughs> if you, if, if money's your driving force, fine. Yeah. At least you're doing something responsible. And you know, money is a driving force why a lot of big businesses do things that are irresponsible. Mm. So why can't there be a driving force for them doing things that are Responsible. So how to flip the script in that sense and, exactly. and use the power of, of uh, money for, for exactly. something better. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. And on that note, as you set out at SMS restaurant, not, or that is, that would be my impression, not to optimize for maximum profit in that uh -huh. sense, because you probably, you could get a Michelin star if you really wanted to. And you can put some table. It's funny. R Renee, Renee and I are really good friends, Renee over and over. And he always jokes around with me. He's like, oh, chef, you could put some tablecloths on and put some jazz on and you get two Michelin stars like that. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, and then he always smiles and winks at me like joking because he knows I'll never do it. Yeah. Um, but it, it is, it, it, but it is a, it's a true fact. Like if we could do some minor tweaks here to 
to do that. To fit the to fit the criteria, of, yeah. but that is so far from what we're about. And what it what I'm so lucky is that the team that I have here, they don't give a shit about that stuff. Hmm. They're here for the right reasons. It's also kind of a filter for people coming here, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you can see the people right away that that don't quite fit in. Mm. And we've had a few people start and you're just like, it's just something not right about this. And then they end up, end up leaving within two or three months because just, it's not a, but the people that stay here, which is the majority of the staff, they're here. I mean, most of the people in the kitchen have been here between three and five years. In the dining room, all upper level dining room staff has been here minimum of four years. So I think it's because it's also a unique environment outside the restaurant world that I think stimulates people because right. we change the graffiti every year. I think that's a big reason why we don't get a lot of these accolades because we change the experience constantly. So in a, in a lot of these accolades, they want a consistent experience and we change it all the time. It's hard to measure. Yeah. If you change all the time, exactly. it's hard and to measure. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe last or second last question uh, would be probably every chef has the, the goal of not making the most money but making the best food on the planet yeah then you kind of what i take away from this is to kind of you add a new layer it's not only make the best food in the, for the uh of the planet but also for the planet yeah in that sense it's kind of a new dimension you're digging yeah. into and what i would be interested in is right now you are kind of the visionary in that sense where you offer that to your guests uh-huh When do you think will, will be the inflection point when the guests demand, demand that from you? That would be, I, I mean, honestly, if the guests start demanding that, I mean, that the whole CO2 footprint thing, it's, I mean, there's, it, there's debates about it, and, and, but it's a, it's, a, it's a baseline to start from. Imagine if we lived in a world where people were not only going on TripAdvisor to see who has the most stars or whatever, but people were going on websites to see what the CO2 footprint was if I eat here. And that was a, a factor in people choosing restaurants where to eat. That for me, I could just retire. I'd be so happy at that point that this is the norm. I, I can't even tell you, like, I just get exciting that you actually just brought that up because no one has ever brought that up. Like, like how it's always me bringing this up. And the fact that if this could be a criteria that people use to choose the place that they eat, that, I mean, I could say there would be a push, a massive push within the industry to move in this direction. Because we, I got in this massive argument when I was in Helsinki a few months ago at a conference with a guy in the audience. And he says, we have to change and, and um, oh no, we have to force big industry to change or we have to wait for them or something like that. And I was like, If you think that big industry is going to change, you're crazy, man. We have to, the consumer has to change. Because big industry, they're, they, if they're making money, they're not going to change. They don't care what they're doing to the planet. If the consumer demands it, then they'll change. So the consumer has to change. And we got in a big argument about the responsibility, whose responsibility is it. And we all want to believe that it's big industry's responsibility. But that's a pipe dream if you think they're going to change. It, there has to be a demand from the consumer. And that if that demand when going out to eat was to understand people's CO2 footprint, that would be amazing. I think that's the, one of the big kind of points we're trying to make here is that transparency, I think, is what is important. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or maybe just tell someone about it. 
You can find all episodes on theidealists.co. As always, here's our last question. Who should we talk to next? In or out of industry? You Anybody? Mm-hmm. Scare arc. You know, Jesper has a really aggressive plan in how, you know, we, he's, I spoke at a, a conference in um, Malmo a couple years ago and he was in the audience and he contacted me the next day. He's like, whoa. I make furniture, you make food. I have no idea how we can work together, but let's get a coffee. And so we sat down, had a coffee, and what he's doing within kind of the furniture realm and as far as like sourcing woods and understanding that was was really amazing. He would be a great interview. Doug McMasters from Silo in London is, I don't know if you're familiar with, I could, he's one of my really good friends. I could, I could arrange that if you like. But Doug McMasters, he is militant about this way of thinking too. And we approach it from very different angles, but his approach is, I mean, every time I go and spend time with him, I come back here thinking we're not doing enough. <laughs> he is a visionary. Like he is, he is thinking so far ahead. Sometimes when I talk with him, I'm like, man, what are you on drugs? This is crazy. I love it, but this is crazy. So he's he's amazing, man. He's like taking his all those wine bottles and turning them into plates, and like I mean, he is amazing. He's he's awesome. Creative problem solver. Then. Yeah, he yeah. is. That's what yeah. he does. He yeah. he. There's no such thing as a zero waste restaurant. Mm. It'll never exist. Mm. But if you want to get as close to zero waste as possible, Doug McMaster's is the one you want to talk to. <laughs>